you are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. I know. Let me, let me put to death a, a nasty rumor, okay? Some of you are thinking, is James going through a late-life crisis? I'm too old to have a midlife crisis, so it would have to be a late-life crisis with all of the cowboy hat and the boots and all that stuff. No, the reality is, folks, I'm just going back to who I am. I mean, this is how I grew up. In fact, if you... Hey, hey you like the shirt? I bought this at Tractor Supply. I do my shopping, my clothes shopping at Tractor Supply. I didn't know they carried clothes. I went in there the other day for something and looked over there and got distracted, and I don't even know what I went in there to get. But I walked out there with a, with a nice shirt. Anyway. Blame it on my roots. <laughs> that's right. I showed up in boots. I showed up in boots. Okay. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> but if, seriously, if you'd seen me in the summer of 1978, I wouldn't look really much different than I do right now. I went through a period of about 30 years there where I didn't wear all this stuff. And I think it was because I wore out my last pair of boots and I was too darn cheap to buy a new pair. Have you seen how much they cost? They are proud of those things. It's almost as much as gas. Almost as much as gas. That's exactly right. So anyway, if you, but if you'd seen me in 1978, I wouldn't have looked much different than this. In fact, the summer of 1978 was a real, real important uh, summer in my life. One of the things that 19, in the summer of 1988 I figured out is that I wasn't very good at dipping snuff. Um, I was with a bunch of young boys, that, cowboys in my youth group there, and, and I thought, well, I'll put a pinch between my cheek and gum and skull, and I was, thought I was pretty much of a man until one of them handed me a pinch of Copenhagen. And I threw up on the side of the road, and my snuff days were over. Had no interest anymore, which is good. It probably saved my life. But the summer of 1978 was important because it was a summer, first of all, that I met my wife. Two weeks before I moved to Fort Worth that summer, at the end of the summer, we got married in 1979, a year later. So that was a very, very important uh, part of it. But also, the summer of 1978, I was the youth pastor at the First Baptist Church in Eden, Texas. Now, it bears no resemblance to its name. I can promise you that. It's a little West Texas town out about 50 miles from San Angelo out in West Texas where I grew up, although I grew up about 180 miles further west than that. And so they asked me before I started seminary, I'd just come out of law school and I was on my way to seminary and they asked me if I'd spend the summer with them as the youth pastor. And it was such a great opportunity I couldn't turn it down because they said, first of all, we don't want you to even have an office at the church. And I went, check one, that's in your favor, because I don't want to. And then they said, really what we want you to do is go out there and just be on the streets with the kids of our community all summer long. Now, I had only, I was about, I guess I was 24 years old at this time, so I was only about six years into Christ. I was six years off the streets myself, so I could still communicate that way. And so I did. So I'd be out on the town square at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, because that's where the kids of a small town hang out, and that's where they drink beer, and I'd be out there with them, and 
I actually uh, played and sang in a, in a pizza joint there in town. It was a pizza slash bar because it was such a small town. They put the pizza place and the bar all in one place, and I'd play music and getting to know people. And it was an incredible summer because lots and lots of kids came to Christ that summer. I'd lead Bible studies. I'd hang out on the square. I'd, I'd play music in the, in the pizza bar joint, and God used that. But I learned a phrase that summer in Eden, Texas, that has just been dear to my heart ever since. Here it is. I'm going to give it to you. This is worth the price of admission this morning, okay? What did you pay to get in the door? Nothing? Okay, well, then it's worth the price of admission. It's worth that. Here it is. Get it did. Get it did. Now, I don't know if that originated in Eden, but that's where I learned it. And this is what, how they would use that. When there was something that needed doing, somebody would say, well, let's get it did. Can you do that with me? Get, get it, it did. did. Some of you say, no, I cannot treat the English language that way. <laughs> when I went to seminary in the fall, and I used that a couple of times, I figured out these folks didn't grow up in Eden, Texas, and they didn't really, they thought, who is this Rube? Where did he come from? So I stopped using it, but I just revived it this morning. Now, that's basically where we are in our study of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in chapter 3, is at the point where it is time to get it did. We've titled this entire study of Nehemiah under the influence because the book of Nehemiah is about a great leader by that name who actually we said we're not going to call him a leader because then people will check out and they go, well, I'm not a leader. I can't do that. We're going to call him an influencer because that's what he was. Right. And we've kind of skipped around here. We started and then we had uh, what last week was Gary Ingram mm -hmm. and then, then we did chapter 2 the week before that. But then the week before that was, was Chris, Chris Thurman. Thurman. And so yep. we've had a couple of guest speakers in. I hope you were here to hear Gary Ingram last week. Gary did an incredible job. Uh, he was here to sit for an interview on film for me because I'm producing the Fearless series for for men, and Gary uh, and Chris both actually were here to interview for that. And so they stayed over on Sunday morning. But Nehemiah was an influencer, and when we get to chapter 3, we get to really see him begin to get it did. You see, he had traveled from Persia, where he was actually a captive. He was a Jewish captive in Persia, had never even been to Jerusalem. But God gave him a vision to rebuild the wall of protection around the city, because you see, that wall had been torn down for about 150 years about 150 years before Nehemiah's time, in 587 B.C., the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, brought an army through and literally destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Tore down all the houses, tore down all the buildings, tore down the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, tore that down, and then literally destroyed the entire wall and then carried all the people off into captivity. So Nehemiah is in... Uh, Persia serving the king, but he gets word in chapter 1 that the, the city is in horrible, horrible condition, and he becomes gripped with this vision to go back and finish the work of restoration that had started under Zerubbabel, and then it continued with Ezra, and now it was time to refortify the city. And so chapter 2, he got the king's permission. He prayed that God would open the door. He got the king's permission. He arrived in Jerusalem. He goes around and personally inspects the wall. He gathers all the people and he says, folks, we're in a sorry, sorry situation. The city is in a sorry place. And he delivered this motivational kind of, uh, you know, rouse the people up. And they said at the end of that, said, then let's arise and let's build. 
So now what you've got is you've got people that have been beaten down who are now motivated. They're motivated to get it did. They're motivated to get the job done. And that's the first job of an, any influencer is to bring people to that point of seeing the value of what it is that needs to be done. But that's only the beginning. Here's a formula. Let me give you a formula. Motivation without organization leads to frustration. There's nothing more frustrating than being motivated to do something but not having a clear path about how to accomplish it, not having a direction, not knowing a way to get to that place. You're motivated, but you just don't know how to get there. And so let me give you another formula. Motivation plus organization leads to transformation. When people are motivated... And then somebody comes along and organizes in such a way to give a plan or a pathway to get that done, then that's when things happen. That's when things get transformed. So in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, we're going to get to see how an influencer organizes. He's motivated already in chapter 2, the people, but now he's going to show them, folks, this can be done. We can actually accomplish this. We can get this thing done. Now, Again, before you check out and you go, well, you know, I don't know this, I, you know, I don't have a big job like building a wall around a city or leading a company or anything like that. So what's this, all this influencer about me? Every single one of us, hang on to this, every single one of us is an influencer in some place in our life. If you're a parent, do you think you're called to be an influencer? Better believe it. You better, bet you are. If you, if you supervise someone? Are you called to be an influencer? Every single one. Do you coach a little league baseball team? Are you called to be an influencer? Every single one of us are called to be influencers. And what we're going to share with you this morning out of the third chapter of Nehemiah will work every single time in every single situation. If you are called to be an influencer, how about being an influencer for the kingdom of God? How important is that? Just as an individual, you may not have a title, you may not be, you know, one of the elders. You may not be a Bible study teacher. You may not be any, But we're all called to be influencers for the kingdom of God. So how does that happen? Chapter 3 of Nehemiah is one of those chapters. And I don't remember if you said this in the first, chapter, uh, first service or not. If you don't, I'm going to steal your thunder. That if you started reading the third chapter of Nehemiah, by the time you got to verse 4 or 5, you'd quit. I did say that. You did say that. I did and say I just that. stole his thunder. Right. I love that. It's all right. See, I get to do the introduction, so I get to steal whatever I want that he said in the first service when I start the second service. That's how it works. That's how we work. Yeah. That's how I roll, right? That's, that's how okay. you roll. Okay. Because I train him, right. so I can do what I want. You, you, you tell yourself that. I can get away with anything. <laughs> and I'm old. Old people can do anything they want and get away with it. Isn't that right? I love being old for that one reason right there. I can do anything I darn well please, and you just go, well, mm. he's just old. Mm. Okay. So here we are. Okay. Let's talk about this. Let's dig into this chapter. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 3. First of all, an influencer <coughs> is someone who has a plan. That's right. And hopefully that's not surprising. If you're going to influence people, it rarely happens accidentally, right? You need a plan. You need direction. You need to have an idea of where you're going, what you're trying to accomplish, and how to get there. And we see the value of this kind of planning in the life of Nehemiah. In fact, we've already seen this kind of planning in the life of Nehemiah. If you remember back to chapter 1, 
uh, we saw what he did in that, what we called the meantime. Remember, Hanani, his brother, had just gotten back from Jerusalem to Persia. This is when Nehemiah first learns about the condition of the wall uh, of the city itself and, and kind of inspires him to move into the work that he's doing here for the rest of this book. But if you remember, in chapter 1, it began in the month of Chislev. And in chapter 2, when the king finally asks him, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? What can I give you? What do you need? Uh, it says it was in the month of Nisan. And, and in that second sermon there, we, what we did is we unpacked the, the months, the Jewish calendar. There was about four months' time that had passed in between chapters 1 and 2. And, and we referred to that time frame as the meantime. And it was a time of waiting, but it wasn't a, a time of idle waiting. There was preparing that was happening. He was praying. He was planning. The meantime, what we said is not so much a waiting room as it is a training room. And that became very evident when the king asked him what he needed. He needed supplies. He needed a writ of passage to get there. He needed a variety of things. He had a plan. He had thought about it so that when the time came, he was ready. And in chapter 3, we see that as well. He has a plan for how to rebuild this wall. The people are motivated, as James said. They're ready to work. And he knew exactly how to direct them and where to put them to get the job done. He wasn't sure how to get Persia to pay for it yet, but he was working he on that. He was working on that. There was a plan. There was a bill in process. Yeah. Uh, chapter 3 is, begins. Are y'all asleep? They're ready. We noticed two things in chapter 3. Number one is he planned to follow the existing design of the wall. So this is just a good influencer leadership principle in general. That, that reinventing something that works is not a good idea. If it works, if it's good, then don't try and reinvent the wheel. Nehemiah understood that. This wall had lasted for a long time. It was a good wall. It had good setup, good, a good design. Let's stick with it, right? But number two, what you notice is that he gives a, a really detailed schematic of the design of the wall as well. He really spells out how all this fits together. It's a little weird for our modern eyes because we don't understand the geography of Jerusalem or, or, or how things were structured, or at least most people in the church don't. Um, the original wall around Jerusalem was a series of gates in different places, and in between those gates were large stretches of stone, and each of these gates served a function. Uh, verse 1, we learn of the sheep gate. This is where uh, it would lead out to pasture. And so sheep would come in from pasture, in through the sheep gate, into the marketplace, where then they would be brought into the temple for sacrifice. And by the time you get to the Gospels, during Jesus' time on earth, uh, this was still referred to as the sheep gate. John 5, verse 2, it says, Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So just a little, this is, this is free, a little free tip. I, I talked about this in first service as well. A good practice in Bible study. When you see connecting terminology between two different places, <coughs> it's good to make a note in the, in the margin. In Nehemiah 3, 1, write John 5, 2 and circle Sheepgate, and then go to John 5, 2 and circle Sheepgate and write Nehemiah 3, 1, and you will forever have those things linked in that Bible. So the next time you're in John, because you won't be in Nehemiah 3 again, uh, the next time you're in John... <laughs> That's right. You'll Till, be, ten years from now, when you teach this, teach this again, again, yeah, you'll go. All right, I remember that. <laughs> After I've gone to be with Jesus, <laughs> yeah. This is a good way of connecting verses, though, right? Uh, verse three, we we learn of the fish gate. This was a, a gate that faced the Sea of Galilee, and it led into a large portion of the city, which was a fish market where people could go and buy fish. I, I love the creative names, right? 
You know, I mean, where do you go to get gate, the fish? Well, the fish sheep gate. come in. Where do you go to get fish? Well, the fish gate. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> call it's, it what it is. It's very simple. <laughs> Verse six, you probably in your translation translation have the gate of Yeshana, uh, sometimes translated the gate of the old city. It opens up to a, a portion of the city of Jerusalem that was referred to colloquially as the second quarter, as the second quarter of the city. And again, if you want to make just some connecting verses, Zephaniah 1.10 uh, the prophet Zephaniah is talking about the day of the Lord here, and he says, On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate hmm, and is. wailing from the second quarter. Look at that. They're both there. And a loud crash from the hills. And there are several others as well. Verse 13, you have the valley gate. Verse 16, the refuse gate. Perhaps the most well-known gate is in verse 26, the water gate, which foreshadowed the massive political scandal led by the Nixon administration. Um, and I thought that happened when I was at Baylor. Yeah. That happened a long time ago. Prophetic fulfillment. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Uh, it's not about the Nixon scandal. Okay, so the, uh, the water gate was where the Gihon Spring was, which was the primary source for water in Jerusalem. I had to call James this week and tell him, hey, I'm doing this joke. Don't step on my punchline, all right? Because he, 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 he knew that I would take it. Absolutely. And, and I would have. I could go on. There's lots of other gates. But here's, here's the point. Nehemiah had a plan. He knew what needed to be done, and he assigned different people to accomplish that task, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment, but I want you to, just for a moment here before we continue on, think about things in your life that are important, your family, your kids, your career, your calling, whatever it is, and I want you to ask yourself this question, do you have a plan for those things, or are you just winging it? Do you have a plan? Do you have a strategy? Do you have a direction? Influencers recognize the value of a plan. Do not fall prey, people of God, hear me, to the over-spiritualized idea that says, just let go and let God. <laughs> that is nonsense. God is ultimately in control. Absolutely. We believe that. We talked week one about the, the, the tremendous importance of fully surrendering and admitting powerlessness over your life and over your circumstances and allowing the Lord to redirect you wherever you're going. Remember what we said was it's easier to redirect a moving object than it is to move a static object. And so understand we can believe and we do believe that God is sovereign and that he is in control and that his way is better and so what we do is we plan and we execute, and when the Holy Spirit moves in a direction different than the one we're moving in, we fall in line. We don't ask Him to fall in line, all right? But we don't just sit and wait idly. We plan, and the, and the Bible speaks a, a lot, actually, about the wisdom of planning. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his step. Man plans his way. God directs. Amen? Mm -hmm. There's value in planning. So I want to talk for a moment about just a few key areas in your life about how this plays out uh, a little more clearly. Let's talk about relationships for a minute. We'll talk about marriage or if you are in a relationship that is moving towards marriage. I cannot stress the importance of this enough to have a plan for that relationship. Guys, I am talking primarily to you right now because God charges you in the Scripture to lead your family and to lead it well. Do not allow marriage to just happen to you. 
Consider for a moment how well you are loving your wife. How often do you plan date nights? How often are you pulling her out of her routines and investing in her, investing in the relationship that you have with her? How often are you talking about the plans and the schedule and the commitments of the week to get ahead of it, to get ahead and and to have an idea and a plan for how you're going to attack together as a team? Because here's the deal. If you are not leading her, someone else will. It may take time, it may take years, but it will happen. Many guys end up in Brian Duncan's office, because that's where they go, (laughs) when their wives file for divorce and their marriage comes to an end, and we have to hit them with the reality that your marriage ended years ago when you stopped caring for it. Now, there are obviously exceptions to the rule, and there are things that happen, but the overwhelming majority of the time, what it comes down to is the guy just didn't want to lead. He just said, I'm just going to let things happen. I'm busy. I'm whatever. And he just stopped leading, and someone else started. There's wisdom in planning relationships. What about your kids? What's your plan with your kids? Do you you have intentional time alone with them? Do you spend time investing in the interests that they have? Are you a good cheerleader to them or an encourager? I cannot tell you, I cannot stress the importance of encouragement in the life of your kids. I heard this, this, I read this article this week, and and this was so profound to me. It was an article about the success of Joel Osteen. And this this take on Joel Osteen, I have never heard before, and I, I thought it was spot on. It was incredible. What the author argued is that bad theology aside, the reason why so many people are attracted to Joel Osteen is because they hear from him what so many desired and didn't hear from their own parents. You can do it. I believe in you. You have worth. You have value. You are loved. Which he is has my- no Bible teaching. No. But he gets those, and that's what so many people are so hungry for someone to tell them. The, the author concluded he's a terrible pastor, but he's a terrific parent. He's reparenting these people. And this is amazing. I mean, but this is, understand this. That makes him dangerous. It makes him dangerous. Yeah. And, and there's a reason why that void is left open for that kind of thing to happen because so many kids don't hear it from their, from their parents. What about your, your calling? I can, uh, I can say that there are several of you who, who have no idea what your calling is. And so how, what is your plan to, to learn that, to, to figure out what your gifting is? How has the Holy Spirit gifted you? Everyone who is born again in Jesus has spiritual gifting. The Scripture is clear about that. What is yours? What's your plan to find it out? If you do know what your gifting is, what's your plan to use it? How are you participating as a part of the body of Christ? Or are you just letting church happen to you? Letting life happen to you? You see, influencers, we surrender to the Spirit of God. We admit powerlessness. But it doesn't mean we just sit and wait. We have a plan. Secondly, influencers must have personnel. The truth of the fact matter is that any task that is worth or is of any magnitude requires a community of people. And one of the great lessons that leaders or influencers at whatever level you are can learn is that you can't do it by yourself and you don't attempt it. But you understand the value of having people come alongside and be a part of that. Now, Nehemiah demonstrates that. In fact, in chapter 3, he shows that he has done a masterful job of inclusion of all of the people in this process getting ready to rebuild this wall. And what I notice about Nehemiah is that he did not go for minimum involvement. Nehemiah went for the maximum involvement. Nehemiah shot for everyone in the city 
participating and some from outside of the city participating in this monumental God-honoring task of refortifying the ancient city of Jerusalem. Now, again, I, if you started reading this, and by two or three verses in, most of you would probably stop reading because you, because you go, what are all these names and what's this all about? This is boring stuff. This means nothing. So let me just take a moment and dig down and just drill down a little bit into these people, who they were, and how impactful this really is. Don't skip over Scripture because you have no idea how it applies to you. It always will have an application. Amen. So notice here, in verse 1, it says that Nehemiah had on the wall a fellow by the name of Eliashib, the high priest, and his brothers. Now, the high priest, he was the big dog. I mean, he was a high muckety-muck, man, among the Jews in Israel, especially now that the temple had been rebuilt because now they're offering sacrifice. So the high priest is a big, big, important purpose, person. And, but Eliashib, the high priest, and his brothers are on the wall, building on the wall. Now, what part of the wall are they building? They're at the sheep gate. That makes sense, doesn't it? And Derek's going to dig into this a little bit more. But the priest would be interested in the part of the wall through which the sacrificial lambs were brought into the city, wouldn't he? And so Nehemiah assigns the rebuilding and the restructuring of the sheep gate to Eliashib, the high priest, and his brothers. But there's another part of this that I just love. I think it's great. Is that Nehemiah is such a masterful influencer that he got the preachers to get their hands dirty. I mean, that in itself was, is a monumental task. I mean, you've got to really know what you're doing to motivate a bunch of preachers to get out there and get calluses on their hands. So even the preachers are on the wall. Verse 2, it says, the men of Jericho were there. Some men of Jericho. Now, Jericho was another city in the Holy Land. So these were out-of-towners. They had come to Jerusalem for the specific reason of rebuilding the wall. <laughs> At this time, there was really not many other reasons to come to the city of Jerusalem. It was still in pretty much shambles. And most of the people, most commentators agree that these men of Jericho were most likely men of influence in Jericho. We're not told exactly what that influence, but, but let's just dream for a minute, okay? <laughs> let's just dream that these men of Jericho were actually politicians. They were government leaders in the city. They were city leaders. They were elected to office and all those kinds of things. That would make Nehemiah even more of a masterful motivator because not only to get the preachers to do work, he got politicians mm. to actually do some mm. work. So I, I love that part of it. And then we skip down to verse 5, and it says there were these men from Tekoa. Men from Tekoa. Now, this is some more out-of-towners. This is some more people that came from another city because Tekoa was a city in Judea. Not all that far from Jerusalem, but it was a city of Judea. But it says the men of Tekoa were involved in the work, but their rulers did not support the work. Wow. And that's all it says. But that, that makes me curious. Why would these men of Tekoa see that this was valuable and so they're willing to get out there and do the work, but the people that lead them in their city, their rulers, if you were, opposed it and didn't want to be a part of it at all? We don't know why because the Scripture doesn't tell us. But one thing it does tell us is that these men who got up on that wall who were from the city of Tekoa, 
They had to be willing to swim upstream, didn't they? They did. They had to be willing to go against the flow. They had to be willing to even risk retaliation because the rulers of their hometown had some power, but that didn't stop them. These men of Tekoa got up on the wall even though there were those naysayers who had some power over them because they believed in the project. Hey, real fast. Yes. I, I didn't ask this first service, but okay. I just, I'm curious. Out of any of my life Bible study people who are in Sunday school, does anyone remember who is from Tekoa? He was a mad prophet. He was. We studied him. Amos. Amos. Amos, the shepherd, they were like, we forgot about that one as soon as we could. Pastor he Derek, was a that, pincher of figs. He was, a, pi, a which fig is pincher. Something that they had to do to get them to ripen, and that's what he did. And they, all of a sudden, then he's a prophet of God. How about that? That's another one. Circle to Koa, you know, Amos 1.1. Yeah, if, if a guy can use a pincher of figs and turn him into a prophet of God, man, he can use any one of us. He can use he? anyone. So anyway, just a little aside. Yeah, Tekoa was a, city, a little town that had a, a great history, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so here are these guys from Tekoa. They're up on the wall while their rulers, while their leaders are, are not supporting the work. Now, that raises an interesting question, okay? Why... Do some oppose that which is good? And you do realize that, right? Pretty much anything that is done that's worthwhile, somebody's going to stand up and oppose it. Even when God is right smack dab in the middle of it, there are going to be people that are going to oppose it. Could I write a book about that? Hmm. About the last four decades of opposition to what this church has become and is a hospital church. But that's another sermon. Why do some people just oppose it? Why did these leaders who were Jews themselves, because in fact, they were of the tribe of Judah, which was the same tribe out of which the Lord Jesus came out of the Root of David, the great king. I mean, these people had a great lineage in the Jewish faith. Yet here they are, when their men are on the wall, rebuilding the wall, they're saying, we don't want it done. They're opposing it. Maybe for the rulers, it was because it wasn't their idea. Mm. And some people, I've known leaders who would oppose anything that wasn't their idea. Anything they weren't going to get credit for. In fact, the greatest struggle that I have around the nation of America right now, getting churches to implement help, hope, and healing work with women who are survivors of sexual abuse, men who are struck in pornography, is not the people. They call me every day. How do I get this in my church? It's the pastors. It's the pastors of churches that are standing in the way of actually getting this work done. So I see it on almost, almost a weekly basis. So maybe it's just because, well, I don't... It wasn't my idea, so I'm not going to support it. We're just going to, or maybe sometimes, well, we're just going to keep on doing the same old thing because we figured out how to do that. I don't know, but researchers call them inhibitors. As a matter of fact, for just a moment, let's talk about this. They tell us that 1% to 2% of people are innovators. Innovators are those who will launch out when nobody else is willing to go. They'll take new ground. They'll take the mountain. They'll think outside the box. They'll create new norms and all of those kinds of things. About 20%, they say, are early adopters. They're not the innovators. They're not going to get out there and start the pro process. But once the process gets started, they'll join on pretty quick. But they say right in the middle is the majority of people, and that's what they call middle adopters. 
Middle adopters are after the innovators have gotten started and the earlier adopters, the 20% have jumped on board and then they see that it's working, they see that it's successful, then they'll join in. And then they say another 10 to 20% are what are called late adopters. In other words, after the project is really almost done, I mean, most of the work is done, then they'll jump on board at the very end and they're called blisters. <laughs> They show up after the work is done. Late adopters. And I have been called a blister by James Fleming <laughs> when it comes to doing work at the ranch. He says, Reeves, you always show up after the work is done. And I say, but I'm old. I've got a brain tumor, and I have a heart problem. Does anyone have a violin? Just... Anyway, I just like younger guys getting the credit. When you start calling James Fleming young, you know you're old. <laughs> so the rest, are these in, in, the rest are inhibitors. They're like the leaders, the rulers of Tekoa. They're not going to get on board no matter what. And for 40 years, I can promise you, as an innovator, I think most people would probably put me in that category, and it hacks people off because sometimes because of the, the, what innovators do. But... For 40 years, how many times I've faced inhibitors. What do you do with an inhibitor? What do you do in the Christian family? What do you do with someone who just says, I'm not getting on board. I don't care how much Jesus is in this. I don't care how good it is. I don't care how much the kingdom of God is going to benefit. I'm not going to participate. What do you do with them? You pray for them. You leave the door open for them to come along. And then you go on without them. And you may be in a place in your life somewhere, maybe, I don't know, in your, in your family, in your work, whatever it is. They're just people going to get in the way. They're inhibitors. They're going to stop the process. You pray for them. You leave the door open for them to maybe have a change of heart later and then go on without them. Because if you do not, they will stop the work. Because inhibitors are usually very loud. And if you allow inhibitors to drive the boat, what they'll do is they'll drive the boat right off the cliff. And so here's what you do. You love everyone, but you go with the goers. You love everyone, but you move with the movers. Verse 8, then he says, the goldsmiths and the perfumers were on the wall. <laughs> this is the artsy-fartsy crowd. <laughs> They're on the wall doing the work too. The Yves St. Laurent's and the Calvin Klein crowd, they join in. In verse 31, it says the merchants are up on the wall. Well, that makes sense because the merchants wanted to do business in the city and the wall had to be up in order to have somebody want to come in and steal all their stuff. And so, yeah, the merchants probably had more motivation than anybody to be on the wall. But this is one that's great. Verse 31, it mentions a guy by the name of Malkijah, Malkijah. And the reason, I gotta, I gotta, I'm going to cover this real quickly. He's one of the goldsmiths. And the reason I pick him out is because it's not the first time that we've seen his name in Scripture. His name appears in the book just before Nehemiah, which is the book of Ezra. What Ezra had done is 13 years before Nehemiah, he had led a group back to rebuild the temple and to reinstitute the reading of God's Word from the temple, the reading of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so Ezra led a group 13 years before Nehemiah, so the temple was rebuilt sacrifices were beginning to be made the word of god was be, being reread and 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 god said at the end of that process we'll read you can read about it in Ezra chapter 10 he said but wait a minute before my full blessing can fall down upon this place there are some people that must repent 
They need to repent. Or I am not going to give my full blessing to what is going on. Now, in Ezra 10, get this, folks. This is so funny. Their names are listed. God put their names down. Said, you, 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 you. Look, read it later on. Not right now. Ezra chapter 10 God lists the names of the people in the city that needed to repent before him before his full blessing was going to fall down. As I, every time I think about this, I think about my hometown newspaper, Monahan's News. It came out twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if you went into the hospital, they put your name in the paper. And they told why you were there. Now, that would violate HIPAA laws today. But back then, we didn't have HIPAA laws. If you got arrested, it didn't matter how old you were, you got put in the paper. Little Jimmy Reeves found his way into the paper quite often. <laughs> Jimmy Reeves, arrested for vandalism or, or whatever it was, or, you know, having more than an ounce in his pocket or whatever it was. Back then it was a full, full-fledged felony. An ounce of what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't even remember. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, they would flat put your name in the paper. So God is just putting people's name right on the front page of the Jerusalem Daily News. <clears throat> Repent, or my blessing is not going to come. Now, Melchijah's name was on that list. Go read it this afternoon, Ezra 10. Melchijah's name appears there. And now we come to Nehemiah chapter 3, and what's happening? Malchijah is on the wall working. He had repented, and now he was a part of God's plan and purpose. Folks, that ought to be hope for a bunch of us that didn't have a real good start in life. Amen. That none of us are beyond the grace of God. All it takes is repentance. Grace always follows repentance. It doesn't come until there's repentance. I hear a lot of people talking about grace, grace, grace. Well, when you repent, grace will flow. Grace flows when you come to a heart of repentance. Malkijah did, and now he's one of these that is on the wall participating in this great God-honoring task. You see, the, my point is this, that influencers include people. And this list of people that he's got, all the way from the artsy crowd to the priest to the merchants to the goldsmiths to all of these people, and some of them, as Derek's going to say in a moment, even had their houses in the wall, and so he had them repairing the part of the wall where their house was. They lived in the wall because this thing was about 20 feet wide. They said that two chariots could ride alongside it all the way around the city of Jerusalem when it was in full form. So there's the plan, there's the personnel. Now bring us home with your point about the, purpose. The purpose. The purpose really, we're ending with it, but it really is where kind of everything begins, right? Your purpose determines your plan. Your purpose or your vision is kind of what sets things in motion. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people are in chaos. Where there's no, where there's no vision, where there's no purpose, people, people have no ability to thrive. And, and so influencers understand the value of having a compelling purpose and allowing that purpose to direct the personnel to do the job or the work of the ministry. Nehemiah does this. Uh, let me direct you to just two ways that having compelling vision directs personnel, because it, it does really two things at one time. Number one, it strengthens the people. It strengthens the people. It gives people skin in the game, in other words. There's ownership. It's no longer just a talking head doing all the work, but, but when you begin to include people in the body or in the community to do the work that is needed, all of a sudden it strengthens that community by unifying them together. 
There's, there's growth that takes place. It, it becomes a stronger uh, group. Ownership matters tremendously in the work of the ministry. Ownership matters in, in anything that you're trying to influence people. I heard a great quote this week. It said, the next time you question the power of ownership, ask yourself how many times you have seen someone polish a rental car. <laughs> you take it to the car wash before you take right. it back. Yeah. I, never in my life will I ever do that. Ownership makes a big difference. And especially, I can't think of another place bigger than in the church. Everyone wins when there is buy-in. It requires oversight. It requires some compromise. And Nehemiah was able to give both of those things. But when there's buy-in with the people, it strengthens everyone to do the job well. It's a humongous, humongous part of, of really motivating people and accomplishing what it is that you're trying to accomplish. But number two, it not only strengthens the people, it really in the end structures the final product. What I mean by that is that when people have buy-in to do the work that, that is at hand, the work that they will do will be better than if only one person was doing it because of the buy-in that they have. And, and Nehemiah understood this as well. The sheep gate, for uh, uh, instance, James mentioned it was the priests that were rebuilding the gate. Why? Because they needed sheep for sacrifices. They had a vested interest in that gate being done and it being done correctly. They would have done the work of repairing the sheep gate better than Nehemiah would have. There are people, as he just mentioned, that, who those houses were, were literally in the wall. You think they have a vested interest in making sure that part of the wall is rebuilt correctly? Yeah, yeah. because if attack comes, I want to make sure my stuff is protected. I want to make sure that this was done the right way. So the buy-in... It motivates, it strengthens the people, but in the end, it actually ends up creating a better product because the people who have the most vested interest are the ones doing the work, and they're going to do it better 10 times out of 10. It's one of the reasons I love watching things like Vacation Bible School come together. This past week, Emma uh, Cunnington, our, our children's pastor, put out, started putting out the call, began contacting the leaders for VBS. This is a subliminal sales pitch for workers for vacation. Go ahead. I've got more too. Um, <laughs> yeah, she began, she began the call to leaders to begin this process. And, and I love it because VBS is, is the perfect expression of this. There is this strengthened core group of people who come together for this monumental task every year. And the product of Vacation Bible School, when we get to the week of, is the product of the gifts and talents of all of those leaders combined. It's not just one person. It's not just Emma telling everyone to do this and put together this and paint it this color and do that. She takes the, the, the things that are needed to be done. She picks people who have the most vested interest or the most giftedness or talent in that area to take that thing and run with it. I'll get you the supplies. I'll get you whatever you need. It's yours. You take it. You make it your own. And they do. And it ends up being a better final product than if it were just her directing everybody to do the work herself. Structure matters. It matters a great deal, especially when purpose is the driving force behind it. Vision and purpose directs personnel in profoundly powerful ways. Not only that, it really directs the overarching mission. It really defines the overarching mission. So I was thinking about this this week with regard to vision and mission at City on a Hill. What is the vision of City on a Hill? It is we are all about the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to read the mission statement here in a moment as well. If you want to write that down, and, and I say it too quickly, it's out in the foyer. It's now in the gym building main hallway as well. We're putting it up in different places for you to be able to see it and be reminded of it. 
We're all about the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. What that means is any ministry initiative, anything that people come to us and say, hey, does City on a Hill have any interest in doing this? If it does not include the help, hope, and healing of Jesus, we're out. We're out. It may be great. It may be innovative. It may be cool. It may be whatever. We don't care. If it doesn't include the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. It is that vision that drives the mission here at City on a Hill. What is the mission of City on a Hill? I'm going to read it. It's four lines. Becoming a safe place for people to let go of their secrets. Let me just be frank with you. You cannot have in no way, shape, or form help, hope, or healing if there is not a safe place for you to live out James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another. To let go of the secrets that are plaguing you, that are destroying you from the inside out. There's no help, hope, and healing without that. Providing a safe process for people to grow in emotional and spiritual maturity in Christ. Again, there is no help, hope, or healing without a process for dealing with those things. It's not enough to just spit it out, spew it out. you got to work through There's something there to work through. Developing disciples in the truth of God's word. There is no such thing as help, hope, and healing. We have no definition of help, hope, and healing apart from the scriptures. So we got to know that. Living or loving one another as a witness to the world. What happens is the help, hope, and healing of Jesus becomes not only the thing that I need to heal and walk in the fullness of who God created me to be, but it becomes the very thing that I reach others with as well. As I love one another as a witness to the outside world. This is the mission It's driven by the vision. The vision defines the mission so clearly. And any time we get away from that, we we lose sight of really who we are, of our identity as a a body. Uh, I want to share with you that Tuesday, two days from now, we have a a webinar that I've been invited to speak on. Uh, Chris Cunnington, uh, our community pastor, connected with a ministry several months ago now called Glue Connect. And what they do is they have uh, presence on social media that has advertising for people who are hurting, who have experienced loss, who are experiencing grief, uh, whatever the case may be, and they are sadly going to these websites rather than going to their churches, because their churches are not safe places to deal with this stuff, and Glue connects them with other churches who have partnered to try to help these kinds of people out, which by these kind of people, I mean anyone. (laughs) That's us. And everyone. Yeah. We're these people. Yeah. (laughs) I'm involved in that. Bunch of sickos. And so... We were asked, because of the thousands of churches that Glue Connect is partnered with, we seem to be able to help and retain people better than any of them. And the reason why is because we have a vision and a mission that is, that is exa- it's about exactly that. We want to give the help, hope, and healing of Jesus to those people. And so it's a great partnership. And so we were asked to speak. And then they have a, an advertising campaign that they put out on social media for other churches to sign up for these webinars to come and hear about what it is that we have to say. And she told me after two days of minimal marketing, 500 churches have signed up. There are actually over 600 now coming up to Tuesday because this is apparently a very compelling topic that people are interested in. Now, I will tell you, James said in the beginning... That, that motivation without organization leads to frustration, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of churches motivated, 600 of them. They want to hear about how to do this. We're going to lay out the organization, and it is going to either lead them to transformation or it is going to demotivate them. You Be- know, without even thinking about it, when we 30-something years ago started organizing how this mission of being a place of help, hope, and healing was going to be laid out, we did it exactly the same way that Nehemiah did. Yeah. 
Because we put people in place who are passionate about that particular need. Women who are survivors of sexual abuse and have walked through help, hope, and healing in Christ, then that malady becomes their ministry. And who better to minister to other women than someone who's been there, done that, and has walked through the healing process? Those who are recovering drug addicts in our church, when someone comes in and has a drug problem, who better and who has more of a passion about it? Alcoholics, whatever it is, post-abortion recovery, all of the things that we do are really structured according to the way that Nehemiah put people on the wall. And back then, I didn't even have enough sense to structure it after that. But that's just how it came together. And that's why they can send someone to us under Derek's leadership now, and we have a place for them. Drug addicts come to our church. And their experience is, I went to other churches and no one wanted me to serve anywhere. And our answer to them is, we want you to lead a group. (laughs) Now, we want you to get help first. Get sober and then lead a group for other addicts. But who better to lead a drug addiction group than a former drug addict? Duh. It's not even, it's not rocket science. It actually makes a lot of sense. But but, but they don't have a seminary degree. Who cares? (laughs) Don't want them to. We don't want them to. Yeah, they're probably less effective at that point, honestly. This is the mission of City on a Hill. And and as James just said, it's exactly what Nehemiah does. We put people in places. In other words, we have a plan. We have organization. We we recognize that there is personnel needed. And we plug that personnel in according to the purpose, which is help, hope, and healing of Jesus. Now, here's a challenge. Where are you plugged in with a passion? Right. The, this work depends on everybody finding a place on the wall that they care about. And so where, what place on the wall at City on a Hill do you care about and you're on the wall? That's right. That's Think just about a, it. Pray on it. Yeah. We have a lot of places where God will use your gifting and your skill set. And here's the thing. Here's just the, the, the honest truth about it. Is it sounds scary It sounds burdensome. It sounds like more on your plate. But I will tell you, I've lived it out. I've experienced it firsthand. When you begin walking according to the gifting that God has given you, you will find a kind of fulfillment that you have never known in any other category of your life. That's right. Because you'll actually be walking according to how you were designed to live and operate. And when a car, for example is maintained and you give it the proper fuel and you give it the proper oil and you give it the proper care, it performs at the highest level. When you take your car and you run it ragged doing a bunch of other nonsense and you don't give it what it needs, it falls apart. There is value in understanding how God has wired you up. And when you begin walking and living in that, get ready. That's when the light comes on and you go, wow. I can be a difference maker. Yeah, you can. I can make a difference. You sure can. And every one of us can. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you. We praise you for uh, Nehemiah's witness here to, to see the need for a plan to enlist people and to execute with purpose. God, I pray that, that your spirit is loud and clear to your people this morning mm. and, and that a challenge, a very godly challenge, has been issued here, not one that is a burdensome or, or uh, oppressive, but one that is freeing when we really walk in the purpose that you have for us. I look forward to seeing how you use some of these people after today for your glory and for our good. Lord, we love you and we honor you. We thank you 
that we have the opportunity to serve you in this small way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good one.